So this evening, I couldn't really come up with a title for this talk, um, but I know what I want to do, which is to talk to you just from the context of my own experience of being with children and offer you some teachings about just how this practice and how mindfulness can really help us be with children in some ways that are both immediately obvious and some more subtle and not so obvious. And then to do this in, with also keeping an eye to the paradoxes involved and this play of opposites that Catherine's been talking with us about. And to begin with, I really, I think my biggest intention or motivation is to just love you up. Really, I want to offer you my deepest bow of respect and appreciation because I think this work of parenting is just an unparalleled path in many ways. And it's a, it's a, um, very precious and it feels sometimes very perilous journey to awakening. So in the context of my feeling this so deeply is my own life as a mother and now my life as a grandmother. And it's kind of starting all over again in certain ways um, in the sense that I think as a parent we go through there's a kind of recapitulation of all of our own stages of life, along with the, our children reaching those stages of life. And then when your child reaches the stage of life of becoming a parent, there's the witnessing of that too, and the welcoming of these new children and all the joy of that, but at the same time, even more opportunities for um, the challenge of working with our attachments. And I want to right away make a distinction. I'm using the word in the Buddhist sense. In psychology, attachment has a very different meaning. In the psychology tradition, attachment means connection, and the capacity to be to form attachments is important and um, evolved and sometimes hard won, but it's about the capacity for closeness and intimacy and staying connected. Very positive, essential things. And in the Buddhist tradition, attachment means something very different. It means, you know, ways that we get stuck, ways that we get caught, ways that we get fixated on experience and really rigid about things. And so uh, attachment is suffering in this tradition. And I think that, uh, I guess what I want to express is some of the ways, and this will come out during the talk, some of the ways my own practice has evolved as I um, be with my grandchildren and my daughter as a mother and my son-in-law and see my wish to love them up and offer them all the love and support in the world for doing this work of being a family and raising these children and the ways in which I get caught and how that happens. And also some things that I've learned um, as my practice has unfolded in these re more recent years about the possibility of being with less attachment, I won't say none, <laughs> that's not true, but with a lot less attachment. Um, somebody, a young adult, came for an interview with me and she had read some teachings of the Buddha on not holding um, attachments for people and not, uh, we've, I can't remember exactly what it was she read, but it made her feel that she couldn't really care about people, that that was being attached. And it was scary for her. And she thought, this is going to be really hard. I don't know how I'm going to do this practice. And what, what would that look like? And we talked about um, the difference between, you know, not caring about somebody, kind of like what we were talking about this afternoon, the Buddha not caring about war. No, the difference between 
being able to be present with others and not react to them, be present with others and care for them and care about them without getting obsessed and compelled and um, completely caught in our relationships to them. So so this is a movement, um, always a movement in and out of balance. And I love the my favorite quote about this is the Suzuki Roshi quote where, from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where he says, he talks about things continually falling out of balance against a backdrop of perfect balance. So I'm going to begin with a quote from Achan Cha. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So our mindfulness practice really offers us a way to know deeply what's going on with children. And this knowing often comes um, as mindfulness works in non-verbal moments of just seeing, of just realizing. And it's such a powerful way of staying present with what's happening with all the strange and wonderful creatures that emerge both in ourselves and in our kids. Beginner's mind um, is a familiar expression to you. It really refers to that quality of openness and curiosity and readiness to learn with which we try to approach experience. And I mean, these are qualities of mind and heart that are highly prized by Zen students and probably by all meditators. And they're qualities that children pretty much naturally have. And in fact, sometimes adults can be um, almost intimidated by this incredible freshness and aliveness and directness um, that kids have. So, you know, kids have such a beginner's mind that they're willing to return over and over and over again to a game. They're willing to begin with us over and over again. And while the repetition of play that is so wonderful for them can be kind of boring for us, that quality of beginning again, of willingness that they have, um, is really inspiring. And lots of times I've heard you talk about that the children are your teachers. And I think, what does that mean when we say children are our teachers? I know one Zen teacher who got kind of miffed because John Kabat-Zinn wrote in his book about parenting that his kids were his Zen masters. And, you know, this isn't really to romanticize children. Uh, I don't want to do that because all we have to do is witness the popcorn scene before the ceremony or what happens when the ice cream comes out um, and we see a different side. Uh, but at the same time, they are really, really exquisitely attuned to whether or not we're present with them. They have sonar for that from infancy. You can see infants fussing because you're distracted. Um, and that is, I think, one of the most powerful ways that they really are our teachers. They know when we are there. They know when we're with them. And they know when we aren't. And so they have this, uh, at least they're born with, and hopefully we provide 
the conditions for it not to be entirely lost in their growing up. But they're born with this sonar for presence. And this presence is a felt sense of connection, of being with somebody. And they're so sensitive and alert to whether or not the adults are with them or not. And the experience of feeling alone in the company of another person can really feel more abandoning than when you're actually alone. I mean, sometimes I've felt lonelier in relationship than all by myself, because when there's someone there, you really expect them to be present, and we're not always able to be. Last night, Catherine talked about um, meeting the self, and she quoted Dogen to study that Buddhism is about studying the self, and that we study the self here. Now, we study the self in order to forget the self. In other words, to not have to be preoccupied with ourselves and completely self-referential and self-absorbed and um, constantly wondering, how am I, and how will I be, and how was I, and was I okay? I mean, we study the self so that we can learn to meet this self with some measure of equanimity and compassion and not have to be so obsessed with it. And then, of course, in forgetting the self, we can be more present with everything. So how do we learn to meet the self in this way? And and I think it's axiomatic that if we can learn to meet ourselves in this way, we can be more present for others. And this is where this journey of being a parent is um, so fraught because the capacity to meet ourselves in many ways goes back to the parent-child relationship. There was a wonderful pediatrician and psychoanalyst that some of you may have heard of named D.W. Winnicott. He's the one who coined the phrase that I hope you've all heard, the good enough parent, the good enough mother. Have you heard this phrase? Oh, I took such heart from this phrase when, um, in my early years of being a mom, because, you know, we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be good enough. And good enough means very basic things, um, and has a lot to do with motivation and intention. He also talked about devotion, and he, I don't know if this was his phrase or what I took away from it, um, maybe somebody knows, but he, I think either he talked about or I took away the notion of ordinary devotion. Did he talk about that? Does anybody know? Yeah, okay, then it was his. And ordinary devotion, this too was so uplifting for me as a parent. Ordinary devotion means that when they're hungry, you feed them, that when their diapers need changing, you change them, that when it's time to get up, you wake them up, that when they're tired, you put them to bed, that when they're dirty, you give them a bath. This is ordinary devotion. And this is something that everybody here does. And uh, this ordinary devotion, it's not someplace else. It's not something we get to after maybe we've done meditation for 10 years or lots of retreats. It's the ordinary devotion of just living mindfully, a little bit mindfully. And this has to do with how we learn to meet the self. To be able to meet ourselves and be present with ourselves in the midst of experience, to be able to do this, we have to be able to have some at least handshaking acquaintance with our inner life. We have to be able to be with ourselves and be able to tolerate that, at least for a little while. We have to learn to be alone. And somebody here um, was telling me that 
they had taken some time off and really looking forward to the chance to be alone and enjoy their own company. And I said, great, and how's it been? And he said, really hard. It turned out that it was really hard for him to enjoy being alone and enjoy his own company. And Winnicott talks about the development of this capacity to be alone in a kind of paradoxical way. It's these opposites again. That the capacity to be alone grows out of having been alone in the presence of another. So the capacity to be alone comes out of an experience of being connected. And this is something that when we sit on our cushions, we are mostly sitting alone and in silence. And we cultivate the spiritual qualities of patience and presence and non-attachment and equanimity through meeting this self in silence and solitude. And then, of course, these qualities get expressed in our relationships with each other and with our children. But they are grown in this experience of silence and solitude. An infant needs our presence, absolutely needs us to organize experience, to be able to tolerate the intensity of experience that's not known and is all new and, I mean, has no um, frame of reference. And through the willingness to be present with an infant, through the willingness of a mother, of a parent, of a father, to provide that holding, that presence, and just be there. It's not that you have to be 100% focused or have perfect mindfulness, but just that ordinary devotion of showing up and being there and being willing to hold them through their storms of fear or rage, hunger, sadness. It's curious because infants are born with the capacity to experience such intense emotions, but they need us to be able to bear them. And through that experience of being held, and through that experience of someone being present through, present through all the vicissitudes of emotion, gradually they become bearable. And for us to learn to be present in that way, someone had to be present for us. And so along with the deep bow of appreciation and love for you as parents comes the appreciation for our own parents and for this lineage of holding and care, imperfect though it is, that allows us to be here, all of us who are able to be here and sit for even as much as, you know, a half an hour in this hall. So through this learning to meet the self in silence and solitude that grows out of the experience of having been met in connection, having been met through presence and holding, um, we can begin to be able to be with ourselves and look in and track the movements of attention, the movements of the heart, in mindfulness, in our meditation. And as we do that, certain themes and patterns emerge. We can begin to see the way children's minds learn the ways of intimacy. When we can be mindfully aware of our natural rhythms of attention, the way that we move in and out of presence, the way that um, presence is interrupted and falls away and we return to it and begin again. As we begin to be able to attend to these rhythms more and more subtly, they can be an uncannily precise mirror of the quality and rhythms of love and attention that we received 
from caregivers in infancy and childhood. And a parent who becomes alert to tracking these movements of mind, of their own mind and heart in this way, can come to know a lot about a child's experience. A child's experience of closeness and of warding off that closeness, of being present, of being absent, um, of being abandoned or abandoning. So our awareness of our own feelings in the moment can bring an often uncannily accurate picture of a child's inner world, allow us to enter that world. And I want to tell you a few stories about um, my work with children to illustrate this. Um, The first child that I'll tell you about is um, Carlos. He came to see me in therapy um, in my office, and he was about nine years old when he came, but his play was really much more like a preschooler. He didn't, um, he didn't hide anything. And, you know, that beautiful openness when you have preschoolers and you can just hear what's in their hearts and in their psyches because they play it all out loud. And, but Carlos was still doing that, and his play was, a lot of it was really violent and sexual and not at all appropriate. Um, although there was one great moment we were both holding puppets. This is a little bit of a digression, but it was really a great moment. We were both holding puppets and um, slithering across the floor toward one another when he suddenly looked up from the play and said to me, is this your job? <laughs> um, and I had to say, yeah, this is my job. But. Um, you know, what, what happened after being with him, what I felt with him was just this tremendous amount of inner chaos and a swirl of overwhelming um, affected feelings. And, and I knew how to bring mindfulness to this. But um, what I saw and what I'm, uh, and the point of this is that the, my own mind state was really mirroring his. I felt his intense need for help uh, sorting out and making sense of his inner world, but, and we went on to do that, but um, just that way of knowing that I was feeling what he was feeling allowed me to enter his world and know more. So there are so many times when you may be feeling certain things that actually are a mirror of a non-verbal, direct way, direct transmission um, without words of what a child is feeling and then how to be present with that. And when we can be open and receptive to children, to ourselves in this way, um, then we're not compelled by anxiety to control the child's experience. And, or even just control in subtle ways by making suggestions. You know, wouldn't you rather do this this way? Um, Wouldn't you rather draw a this or a that? And when we're willing to um, rest in presence, and when we can be comfortable ourselves resting in presence, then we don't so much um, revert to these ways of actually abandoning children to our own conceptual world, you know, our own expectations, our own ideas of what the play should look like, and, um, and I, know, uh, I know that I did this when my daughter was small, and one of the ways that I know this is by watching some of the things that she did with her first child when she was first learning to play. And being able to see these, um, it's like kind of an endless regress of mirrors, you know, backwards in time. And being able to see this with some self-compassion and know that it was still good enough, there was still that devotion, and it wasn't perfect to be able to see this and 
extend my love and support and not say, um, why don't you try this or why don't you do it that way? Um, I've begun to see, you know, it's not that I didn't try, I want you to know that. It really wasn't from um, some idea of being spiritual and mindful that I refrained. I didn't restrain myself. I just saw the look on her face when I would say, why don't you? And little by little learned to let go and stop. This activity of openness, of receptivity, of acceptance that is part of mindfulness is a gift to children, adult children and young children both. Then they're free to come forward and inhabit our relaxed space of receptivity just the way they are, just the way we are. Our peaceful state of being when we can be present in a reasonably peaceful state, uh, that invites children to just come as they are and meditation is a kind of come-as-you-are party, you know. We're invited to just be present as we are. The Buddha asked us to know um, in his first talk on mindfulness, he asked us to know what's present in the mind. And he wanted us to know what's present in the mind, not just with a view to accepting it, but with a view to being able to see its unstable and insubstantial nature. And in this way too, um, by the willingness to accept and open and be curious and be present, um, we too can begin to trust the unstable and insubstantial nature of that which bothers us of that, those places where we get so stuck. Of course, the other places may be fleeting too. All the scary, unacceptable, strange and wonderful creatures that live in our children's hearts are drawn to the still forest pool of our receptivity. And then all our expectations and concepts and um, maybe spiritual ideals, all the things that might be driving the relationship just aren't anymore. And there can be some authentic presence, healing presence. I want to tell you another story This is a story about a girl I'll call Maggie, and all of these stories are disguised. Um, but this is a story about the power of authentic presence in relationship. And it's also a story that illustrates something that my Zen teacher, Kobanchino Roshi, said to me that has become, it was really a koan for me for many years, and I. Um, told the story in the group this afternoon, but years ago I uh, helped found a school for severely emotionally disturbed kids from the greater uh, metropolitan Boston area, and it was pretty heartbreaking at first working at that school, and um, heartbreaking to work with the parents and the kids, and so I would ask my teachers, um, how do you do this, and what about this, and uh, how do I meet these selves, and how do I meet myself in the process of meeting these selves, and all my own feelings of wanting to make it better, and wanting to somehow be of service, and, um, and I didn't see at that time so clearly that some of my wanting to fix things wasn't the activity of compassion so much as my having trouble bearing the painfulness of what was going on, um, and therefore wanting to fix it. And Copan just looked at me, I said, how? And it was an impassioned question, how can I help? 
And he said, I said, what's the best way to help these families and these kids? And he said, no idea of helping. And that no idea of helping, uh, what did he mean by that? Well, it came, I came to understand it in different ways over the years, you know, at different levels. But the first thing was being able to let go of the self that needed to help, of being able to be a good helper, just that identification with being that helper, I think. Um, no idea of helping. And I think another meaning was not feeling like I had to really think about it and figure it out, but encouraging me to just be present with all my heart. And that out of that wholehearted presence and that willingness to be there would emerge um, what needed to be done. So I think he was talking about trust, too, in that no idea of helping. And maybe many more things that you can think of, too. But this is a story of Maggie and how the idea of helping really got in the way. Um, Maggie is a girl who uh, came to me, and again, this is a story from my work as a therapist, but she came to me already a veteran of psychotherapy at nine years old. She had seen two therapists that she'd pretty much um, chewed up and spat out. And one of them was my mentor, somebody very skilled whom I respected enormously. And he just said, um, he didn't say that he couldn't work with her, but he didn't want to. And would I please? Because he was pretty frustrated. And, um, you know, you don't refuse a request like that from your mentor. And so she came to see me. and. Because she had had a bunch of therapy before she came, she knew all my tricks. And every time I would make a certain move to try and uncover what she might be thinking or feeling or what was going on, um, she would completely thwart me. She'd throw a fit or she would go into a sullen, sulky silence. And this was a girl who was just in constant fights at home and at school. She didn't have friends. She was lonely and angry and miserable. And we went on like this. It seemed like her sole pleasure in coming to see me was in defeating me and making me feel miserable and helpless. And gradually, I began to have the feelings that other people had toward Maggie. I started to dread seeing her. Um, I wasn't actually filled with love and compassion for her. Um, and she really forced me to confront my own anger at not being able to be a successful helper, not being able to help her at all. And finally, one day, we were sitting in a pool of lamplight playing together. And it was twilight outside, that beautiful blue time of night. And I was so distracted. My mind just wandered out the window. And I was looking at the beautiful color of the twilight and slipped into a state of very deep quiet inside, just that hush of twilight. Inside and outside became one. And I kind of forgot about her for a minute and just entered that undivided heart, that place of stillness. And, and then I just shared with her from that place, look, look outside, it's all blue. Have you ever noticed that? And talking to her as a friend, just being authentically present with her, not trying to fix her, not trying to do anything. She caught the whiff of that immediately. And for the first time, we shared a friendly, peaceful moment of open-hearted connection. And that was really the turning point in our being together her feeling respected and connected and 
um, able to begin to talk about her long, long lists of grievances and the stuff that was really bothering her. So we express our uh, willingness to be present in so many different ways with children. And we implicitly express um, compassion and kindness toward the fear and anger and jealousy in our minds and in those of the kids who are in our lives. In this way, we allow every aspect of the child's being to be there. All those strange and wonderful creatures, all those strange and difficult creatures. And kids really do sense this different kind of receptivity to their being. Somebody was saying in one of the parent groups that she didn't know what caused it to happen, but that when there was this shift, her child immediately knew it and would suddenly become um, cooperative and would suddenly stop struggling and fighting with her. And this shift comes from, again, this willingness to meet the self, to connect with the self that we carry and the self that the children bring to us, no matter, really no matter what it is. This one last, I'll tell you one last story. Um, This was a boy that uh, came to see me and he would always bring, uh, he came with this big box of a kind of cereal called Fruity Pebbles. I don't know if this still exists. Do do you know what Fruity Pebbles are? Sugar cereal of all different colors. And um, so he would carry this into being with me. And invariably, at some point in our playing together, the Fruity Pebbles would just fly. I mean, he basically dumped them out, but it would look like an accident. I mean, he made it look a little bit like an accident, but they would just fly all over the place. And, you know, it was an aggressive act to, you know, these minute, and there were jillions of them, and I had a rug, and there, you know, they would just be everywhere. And I remember the first time it happened, I just, you know, and I had somebody coming afterwards, and... I just looked at him. I felt so stupid for having let it happen. But at the same time, it was so funny. And I burst out laughing and just just laughed and laughed because, you know, there's something about, it'd be like seeing the meditation hall covered with Rudy Pebbles. It was incongruous and it made me laugh. And again, it was that spontaneity, that authenticity, that connection. And where he had expected to be punished and yelled at, instead there was some laughter and humor. And he, too, was able to begin to tell his story. So I've talked about the quality of beginner's mind, that openness and receptivity and eagerness to learn, and also the willingness to begin again, over and over again, Um, in play, in presence, whenever we've lost it, whenever we've fallen out of connection, to reconnect, or uh, to stay present with the disconnection. That's really hard. And that's actually one of the things that makes it hard to uh, set limits with our kids, that in setting limits, we have to tolerate some disconnection, we have to tolerate uh, that sense of abandoning and being abandoned both um, in the doing of that. And to be able to know about beginning again, to be able to know that we can do this, 
that we can hold this intention and we can do this, um, it really makes it much more possible to bear. And also, again, to see why are we being present and why are we doing this. To see the impermanent, unstable, insubstantial nature of experience. And then to be able to track, to begin to track some of the movements of attention, um, that falling in and out of balance against the backdrop of perfect balance. Or like when we practice um, with the meditation instruction to be with the stillness of the body, to notice the stillness and, and orient to the stillness of the body and be able to feel the flow of sensations, the whole field, sometimes feel the body as a whole field of pulsing, flowing sensation, um, and also against that backdrop of the not moving, or to experience the swirl of whatever is going on in the mind and heart, and again, to experience that against the backdrop of stillness, to be able to rest in these two worlds, the world of movement, the world of stillness, the world of our um, self, and the world that happens when we can forget the self. Um, the, be- the ability to rest without anxiety in the not yet known, the yet to be revealed. This is so important. Um, and to not get attached. Uh, the reason I'm talking about the impermanent and unstable, inconstant, fleeting nature of what appears is because it helps to not get so attached. I remember when I was a teenager trying on different ways of being and different ways of dressing and and it seemed like each time my parents would freak out and think this is the way I was going to be forever. I was always going to wear black boots and black turtlenecks, or I was always going to... And, you know, being able to remember that um, we don't know what's next. We're always kind of playing catch-up. We don't know what's next. This can bring um, a tremendous sense of balance, always falling out of balance against that backdrop of perfect balance. So there are these opposites, um, being alone and being together. The paradox of learning to be alone through being in the presence of another. Um, and developing this capacity to meet the self, to meet the self truly, just as we are, our true self, not a self that we have to pretend about, or um, a false self that we uh, learn to have to please the people around us, but to meet ourselves face to face in intimate connection this capacity to be alone in the presence of another that we grow and that we really nurture in this practice. Um, Sometimes I think that a lot of the practice is learning how to hold more and more and more of experience in this unwavering presence that is so intimate and that definitely has to do with our capacity to be intimate with each other in intimate relationship. And Catherine talked last night about how attention shapes our world, shapes our perception of the world. And I'm talking about beginning to see how our attention shapes the world of ourself and our perception of ourself in such a way that we can also come to understand something about how our movements of attention shape our children's world and their experience of themselves. All the opposites that we've been talking about here over this week um, in the course of this retreat together, 
all of these opposites can be held in the same heart and how to have them peacefully coexist in the same heart is really the same thing as talking about the middle way what did the buddha mean by the middle way we understand the middle way to be not something about um, compromise or negotiation um, but more about balance that having indulged in you know a very pleasurable life in the palace then having in a very touching way um, gone into ascetic practices until he was just skin and bones um, the Buddha learned something about a middle way of balance but there's another meaning to this middle way too um, that I think uh, that I think was also um, something the Buddha was pointing to the ability to hold opposites simultaneously in attention in mindful awareness when we can do this this is a doorway into the absolute we have time let's just take a couple minutes and do this together for just a couple minutes so just take your meditation posture or an approximation a relaxed approximation is fine and um, and just choose two opposite two places that where you might be polarized um, two things that feel quite polarized to you I mean it could be loving and hating it could be anything that feels um, that there's conflict between them in your heart and now take a moment and see what happens if you can hold both of these in attention simultaneously right now not moving from one to the other allowing both to be there to be here right now So when you do this, something happens, doesn't it? Suddenly, instead of being suspended, oscillating back and forth between these opposites, the attention opens, doesn't it? It gets bigger. And suddenly we are resting in that undivided whole that Catherine talked about so beautifully last night. This ability to stay connected to those things or those qualities or those experiences that feel so opposed in the heart. puts us right in touch with that vastness, the totality in which the particulars, life in the form of this and that, of you and me, in which all the particulars live and move and have their being. One parent talked about, we were talking about um, seeing each other, seeing the goodness in one another. And one parent said, sometimes I feel like being a parent just brings out all my badness. 
So what happens when we hold the goodness and the badness and allow them to peacefully coexist in the same heart? I want to close with a story that feels somehow about this. And it was told by a man a few weeks before his death. And this is what he said. When I was a small boy, I lived in a house which was reached by a long road that ran along a small river. In the spring, the river would often flood. And once, after a flood, I found a rainbow trout washed up from the river, struggling to live in a drainage ditch beside the road. It seemed very wrong to me, this beautiful fish, trapped in this small, shallow, and muddy place. Even though I was little, and it was a big fish, I somehow managed to pick him up. I carried him across the road, waded into the river a little way, and put the fish into the water. What I remember most vividly is the moment when the fish realized it was once again part of the river. So let's just sit for a moment. may we all, parents and children alike, down across the generations, find our way back to the river. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.